Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business and more. My guest today is Adam Moorfeld, Nebraska State Senator for District 46 in Lincoln and Executive Director of Civic Nebraska. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. In 2008, while still an undergraduate, Senator Moorfeld founded and still leads Civic Nebraska, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to building youth civic leadership skills, strengthening civic health in our communities, and ensuring elections are accessible for all Nebraskans. In 2014, Senator Moorfeld was elected to the Nebraska legislature to represent District 46 in Northeast Lincoln and re-elected to another four-year term in 2018. His focus in the legislature has been affordable health care, maintaining a strong K-12 education system, living wage jobs, affordable higher education and trade programs, and protecting civil rights. In his free time, Senator Moorfeld enjoys volunteering, Husker football, spending time with his fiance and family, long distance running, backcountry camping, and traveling. Senator Moorfeld, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Do people just commonly refer to you as Senator Moorfeld? Um, some people do. Um, I prefer Adam personally, but okay. I respect the office, but I don't, I don't necessarily need the title. So, With your permission, I'll call you Adam. <laughs> no, I would appreciate that. I sort of want to dig into your psychology a bit, and it doesn't feel fair to start off in that straight away. So let's go back in time. And would you mind sharing with us a little about your childhood? Sure. And then we can get to the free therapy session. Um, my, my mother and father, um, both born and raised in Lincoln and Omaha, uh, met, met in uh, Catholic Bible study, um, which is kind of like the online dating of the 1980s, I guess. And uh, my dad joined the Marine Corps and you know, went to boot camp and ended up uh, in Long Beach Naval Station. That's where I was born, in California. And then he was stationed in South Carolina. My parents um, split up um, pretty early on in my life. And so my dad stayed in the Marine Corps and my mom came back to Lincoln, Nebraska. And so we lived with my grandma for several years here in Lincoln, Nebraska, not far from my district, actually, just uh, south of it, a few blocks on, on J Street. And so I went to St. Teresa's for kindergarten grade school and then my mother moved to Omaha and I went to oh now I'm stretching my memory Edison Elementary Conestoga Elementary and then my mom met my stepdad and we moved up to Sioux Falls South Dakota then I came back down here for undergrad and got involved in uh, politics for the first time. Do you have uh, siblings? I do Um, so I have a half brother and half sister Um, my mom was single mom for most of my life. And so we have uh, three dads in my family. And so no, no direct siblings, but they're my brother and sister. We don't really get too worked up about the, the details in my family. I'm wondering if you look back at your early years, these kind of formative years, and think about how they shaped who you have become. So what was happening to you as a child? What were you doing as a child? that you can look back on and just think you might have only been five to 15 years old, but these forces were shaping you. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's hard to deny that any of our childhoods does not somehow shape who you are and, and who you've become. Um, It doesn't have to define you. Um, We can always change as individuals. That being said, um, 
you know, for me, even though my parents separated when I was six months old, I always had a very close relationship with my father because he was very intentional about it. You know, I still have all the letters that he wrote me every week and, you know, he made time to call me two or three times a week as a kid. And, and so it's interesting. I grew up away from my father most of my life. Um, but I always felt close to my father. And I know that there's some people that grow up with their father or maybe even their mother, but they feel very distant from their father or mother. And so I'm really fortunate in that regard. That being said, living with my mother, she was, you know, a single mother up until she met my stepdad when I was probably 12 or 13. Um, and my stepdad is a, a, a great guy, um, really um, just an upstanding guy. I can't say enough good things about him. But between that time, I had a lot of experiences that were formative. So when, when uh, my mother and I moved out of my grandmother's house, um, we lived in federally subsidized housing. Um, my mother worked full time at Gallup, but still needed um, food stamps and federally subsidized housing and some other things, primarily because uh, one or two fathers of uh, given time, you know, didn't pay child support or something like that. So. For me, I, I grew up with my mother doing all the right things, working hard, you know, full time. I remember working at night. Gallup gave her a computer that she could take home, so she had more flexible schedule, and that was a big deal in the '90s having your own computer, right? And so I, I remember very distinctly my mother working hard, but her being very honest about needing some of these benefits. We would talk about it, and, and I remember one time we talked about it because. Some lady um, at the grocery store started berating my mother because she had WIC or food stamps or something like that. And so my mom had to have a discussion about what they were. So those experiences, along with some other experiences, you know, really formed why I work on some legislation, why I advocate. I wonder if you were aware at that time that um, however you felt, that there was this kind of aura of stigma being sort of put upon you because of that support that your family was receiving? You know, I, I can't say I remember the nuance in my head at that time. And I, you know, I'd probably be lying if I, if I did say that. Um, I do know, though, that it left an impression on me that people work hard and they need help. Nothing wrong with that. And so when people, bring those things up on the floor of the legislature and, and particularly when the people that bring them up on the floor of the legislature receive hundreds of thousands of dollars of help themselves over the course of several years or sometimes in a year in itself, just in a different way, you know, in a federal subsidy or tax credit or something like that. It's very hypocritical and I call it out for what it is and they can view it as something different, but when somebody works hard, in a factory or in an office setting um, and works full-time and still needs help and benefits to get by, I don't see how that's any different than somebody else working hard um, in a business, whether they're running it or a farm or something like that, and they need assistance as well. And I support both equally um, because it's a part of being a society that looks out for one another. It's part of having a social compact. It's part of being a strong society. You mentioned a family context of the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask if you still hold the Catholic faith closely, observantly, and to what extent that perhaps influenced your early years. And certainly we can think about how that influences you now. 
Yeah, so I, I did attend a Catholic school for um, two years, St. Teresa's, um, and then I, I received First Communion in the Catholic Church. You know, I, I've always been, even as a kid, drawn to faith, religion, spirituality. I can't say that word. Um, spirituality? Um, <laughs> maybe that's the southern accent that I had when I was a little kid for a while in South Carolina. But, um, in any case, um, I've always been drawn to that, and I remember... The reason why I got First Communion um, or received First Communion was because I told my mom, hey, I want to go to church. And my mom went to the priest and went to our local parish in Omaha. My son has requested that he comes to church. And uh, I think maybe my grandma, um, who recently um, passed away, had a little bit to do with that. Um, She also had priests uh, send me notes while I'm in the legislature. And so, you know, I've I've always been drawn to that. Um, No, I'm not a practicing Catholic right now. Um, I do go to First Plymouth um, every once in a while, and and consider that maybe my spiritual home. I can't say that I'm I'm there every week, but yeah, I I think that the things that drew me to the Catholic Church was their dedication to social justice at the time, in particular, and um, and also their dedication to service, so Catholic social services. Um, that being said. There's plenty of things that I disagree um, with the Catholic Church on, both morally, um, constitutionally, and in other aspects. And so I I think that uh, we just have to agree to disagree. But I've also seen a lot of great work that they've done. Um, They've supported Medicaid expansion, which um, is something that's very important to me and my constituents and many of the people they serve. And so like any other um, institution, organization, movement, There's things we agree on, there's things we disagree on. What were the motivations that pushed you towards legislative office and, and the, you know, that urge to, to run? And that's no easy task. Yeah, so I didn't really grow up in a politically active family. I mean, my mother and stepfather voted, um, so did my dad, but we didn't talk politics that much and it wasn't really the center of our lives. So it was only until I worked a few years full time after high school because I didn't know what I wanted to do and then um, went to undergrad. Um, and I decided to do it full time. I, I was like, okay, I did some night classes at community college. I'm like, let's take the dive. And so I went to the University of Nebraska Lincoln because where my family's from, and I grew up for a while and and um, lived in the dorms and did all that fun stuff. 
And I remember one night I, we were watching Dog the Bounty Hunter with my roommate and my girlfriend at the time, who was very active in the Democratic Party, kind of um, took me kicking and screaming to a Young Democrats meeting. And at that Young Democrats meeting, I met some names that are familiar to some of us old timers, Amanda McGill, Daniel Conrad, um, Heath Mello, um, and then a few other people who were running for office. This was 2005, and they were, um, a few of them were just announcing that they're going to run for office. And I thought, wow, this is a really cool group of dynamic people. And then I looked into the parties a little bit more and, and saw that I really aligned with the Democratic Party. And so I remember going up to Heath Mello, and, and, who was the deputy director of the Democratic Party at the time, and said, hey, I mean, I'd love to be an intern. And you know, he had me on the next day, literally. Um, and so I sat between him and the political director at the state party office. And a guy named Barry Rubin was executive director at the time and, and uh, learned a lot. You know, that summer, I actually worked full time for the Democratic Party. Um, and I was going door to door and talking to people. And I found that it was a lot of fun to talk to people at the door. You never knew what was behind that door. And uh, most of the time, people had a lot to say, and it was interesting. And so I learned through that process that running for office isn't rocket science. It's about having a passion for your community, an idea of what you want to do for your community, and then going out and reaching out to your community. That kind of demystified the process of getting elected and that it wasn't rocket science, right? And then um, I got involved after that because I met some people um, as an intern for U.S. Senator Ben Nelson, um, the Lincoln office, I became a legislative page. So I really um, saw the legislative process firsthand and how interesting it was. And then um, I got involved with student government. And in getting involved with student government, my big focus was getting young people involved because being a political organizer before that, I knew what the barriers were and what the barriers are not and that people just perceive, right? And so um, we made it our goal to get um, young people more involved in their community and their democracy at the um, UNL student government. Then I ran for student body president, and I lost by about 100 and I think four or five votes. Um, not that anybody's counting. Um, so I did not become um, the student regent and student body president. But what's interesting is that loss then um, drove me to start Civic Nebraska, to start to keep doing the work that we were doing in student government. So as I started Civic Nebraska and started advocating down the legislature from my skills that I had learned, um, both as a field organizer, but then also a legislative page, understanding the legislative process and what effective advocacy looks like, I also realized that, you know, I was kind of tired of being behind the glass. You know, I wanted to be um, a decision maker and in the legislature. And my senator, Daniel Conrad, now the executive director of the ACLU, former state senator for the fight in 46th legislative district. Uh, was terminated. And so it seemed like the right time for me to step up and put my money where my mouth is. If young people are supposed to be involved and supposed to be having seats at the table, and I was telling them that, then then I needed to, to practice what I preach. So I think it's interesting you use the word demystify, how you sort of demystified how um, policy turns into legislation and how campaigning, it, it's a lot of hard graft and work and knocking on doors and just doing the work of campaigning. In that spirit, I think many people look at the legislature and just think it, it is too far away from them to uh, be capable of being influenced. So I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind demystifying what it is to be a state senator. It's a loaded question. It's probably a three-hour conversation. Um, <laughs> you know, so first off, um, I think people are shocked at how accessible their state senator 
generally is. I mean, are there a few state centers that um, don't respond to correspondence and email and all that? Sure. I mean, I'm sure there's a few. I don't know very many that don't. I only represent 40,000 people. Um, and so I consider myself a local elected official. My city council representative, my district city council representative, represents over twice as many people as me. And just to give you an idea. And so, um, so we are very accessible in, in that sense. We're also very accessible in the sense that I would say 90% of state centers answer their own email, their own correspondence. I mean, yeah, they have staff that have kind of sit through it and things like that. But I can't tell you how many times somebody has emailed me and gone, hey, I get where you're coming from with your legislation, but there's an unintended consequence here that will lead to this. And it literally led to the legislation either being amended, dropped, or killed. Um, and just by one person sending just a very common sense, like, hey, listen, um, and that, that happens time after time. And I think a lot of people think that the process is, they don't think it is. The, the process is a little bit scary. It's not very accessible. We have our hearings, you know, from one to five when most people are working. Um, and all these other things that I sit in committee hearings for hours. And when a regular citizen comes in and or resident, they don't have to be a citizen, anybody who's part of our community, comes in and testifies. Senators listen. Not that we don't listen to the people that are paid and down there every day, but when just a regular person comes down, um, somebody who's representing their profession or a teacher or a police officer or um, a community activist, um, and they come down and testify, people perk up a little bit and they go, oh, okay, this is <laughs> somebody's living it. And so I also tell young Nebraskans that the number one issue that we always talk about and face in our state is keeping them here they're our biggest export. And so when young Nebraskans come in or they send an email saying, hey, I'm a young Nebraskan and I'm look, I have all these different options of where I could be, but I'm here because of X, Y, and Z, or I'm considered leaving if you do X, Y, and Z, that's one of the most powerful statements. So I want to demystify the fact that senators don't pay attention to their constituents and that constituents don't have power. Now, demystifying what it means to be a state senator. How I view my role is understanding how law and policy positively or negatively impacts the Nebraskans I represent, most importantly, but I'm not just state senator for District 46, I am a state senator, how they, rep how they impact all Nebraskans. And so, you know, and that sometimes that's me um, driving down the street and going, why the hell is that that way? <laughs> um, other times it's people reaching out to me. And sometimes it's just me sitting at home thinking. Um, and that's my job is to make sure that we have laws and policy that will positively impact the lives of Nebraskans and allow them to be happy, successful, safe, and achieve whatever their dreams are. That's how I see my role is to listen, learn, and observe, and then um, introduce policy that is representative of those experiences. You wanna hold me like you used to, but I keep saying we're done. Guess this meant more to you than I thought. I needed you just for fun Ooh, 
So that's admirable, and I feel like that's exactly what I want to hear. Let me push that a little bit then and talk about the axiom that power corrupts. We can talk about how the sausage is made. I think politics feels like a messy and dirty business. And I feel for many people there are two things, maybe. Well, for me, there are two things that worry me. One is, one is that power corrupts. And I want to ask you, firstly, how do you stay grounded and avoid sort of being corrupted by by power there's a few things um it's hard to know exactly where to start with that question because i could go a lot of different directions so first i think a lot of people think of elected officials and administrators and things like that as these anomalous others right <laughs> you know i i wake up every morning and i have good days and i have bad days i I, I have insecurities and uh, ego and, you know, all kinds of other things that everybody else has. Um, we're not much different. So um, when we become the they and, you know, they're different and things like that, I think that's dangerous regardless of the political ideology of the spectrum. So it's, it's important to, rem to remember that these are people, particularly on a local elected level. Um, nobody's running for state legislature to get rich quick. Um, you know, it's $12,000 a year. It's a full-time job, half the year usually. Um, and then even when you're not in session, if you're doing your job right, it's 10 to 20 hours a week, um, if not more. Nobody's coming down to the legislature to get rich quick. And, you know, it's a lot of work just to have a cool title and some letterhead too. I don't know very many people that are in the legislature because they just love power, right? There might be a few, but I can't name them. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I'll say about that is everybody's in the legislature for maybe a little bit different of a reason, right? I kind of split it up into three different categories and maybe I shouldn't say this publicly, but I'll do it anyway because I'm term limited and it is what it is. Um, you know, the first folks that I see come down there are the ideologues. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I'm an ideas guy. I, I consider myself an ideologue. There's other folks that are, that come down there because they're partisans. They really like their political parties and maybe it's a little bit more about power and they believe in their political party and all that stuff. Um, not that I don't associate with political party, they do good things, but those people, they don't care so much about policy, they just care about power. So I call them the partisans, it's not necessarily Republicans or Democrats. And then I, the third group of folks that come down there are just the folks that are just community-minded folks and people are like, man, you should run. And they're like, yeah, shucks, I should run. Um, and, and they're down there and they have a political leaning and they kind of go one way or the other sometimes. I'm down there because I believe in good ideas. And I told myself a long time ago that I was going to fight for the things that I thought were right. And then if that provides some kind of path to serve the community in another public office down the road, then so be it. And if this is the last public office that I serve in, then, you know, I mean, that's okay too. Um, and 
you know, so it's always very interesting when people tell me, God, Adam, you're posturing politically. And I'm like, I'm a Democrat in Nebraska, and I'm fairly liberal and pretty open about it. If I was posturing, I would be doing this a much different way. I think that it's hard not to be cynical right now because the national politics are so tough. But I will tell people that I have a lot of colleagues that I disagree with a lot down in the legislature. But I also have a lot of respect for almost all of them because they're down there for the right reasons. They are. They're not the reasons I'm down there for. And they, they're not advocating for the things that I would advocate for, a lot of them. Um, but I can tell you, 95% of my colleagues, I feel like are down there for the right reason. You have a set of beliefs. You have this um, ideology grounded in your values that doesn't necessarily neatly align with the, the values and beliefs that other people are mm -hmm. there for, your senatorial colleagues. How do you make that sausage? How do you do the hard work of sacrificing something, compromising on something, so that you can move, what's the analogy, uh, move the ball down the field? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And I, I think that there's some things that I have just decided on, you know, they're issues of principle and it's black or white for me and that's, it's not going to change. Um, there's no shades of gray in my opinion, right? Things like voting rights fall in that category for me. Things like um, freedom of speech and civil rights, that falls into the category for me. Um, but my idea of civil rights is a different idea than some other people's, right? So there are some things where I have just, I have looked at the issue, I've listened to my constituents, whether it was knocking on 20,000 doors and hearing the voices, or I have taken a stance on in the past and I'm like, you know what, it could go that other way, but I've analyzed the issue, I've seen how it impacts my constituents and this is where I'm at. So there are those issues where um, I just will not move. That is probably only 20% of the issues though. The other 80% of the issues, I either am learning about for the first time, I have analyzed in the past and I could go either way. So depending on the circumstances, both externally and internally in the legislature, um, I, I might be swayed one way or the other. And so it's, it's, that's where there's some middle ground. Everybody has their own way of determining that. There's some folks that come down to the Capitol where their district is very different than their personal views, but they have decided that they are coming down and they are a delegate. Um, they are sent down there by their constituents to represent their views. And if they feel like 51 plus one or 50% plus one, of their constituents feel that way, even though they feel strongly different personally, they are going to vote that way. For me, I feel like um, I'm a hybrid. You know, I, I feel like I'm a, a delegate, but also a representative, and that I have to look at the big picture and do what I think is right and explain why I've done what I've done to my constituents. And it's up to them whether or not they want me to continue to serve them. Is there an example, one that might illustrate the successful journey into law of something that you hold dear in, in one of those categories that means something important to you and maybe an example of something that you, you just couldn't move forward and it's been you know maybe deeply frustrating yeah i've got a few of each um while we're in the therapy session um <laughs> no i um so one, one example is a bill i'm working on right now um i had several constituents come to me and say I've got, i'm getting these surprise medical bills like i went into the emergency room i checked before I went in there and make sure the hospital was in network. It was like, I did all my due diligence, even though it was somewhat of an emergency. Um, and yet I'm getting these surprise bills. And so I started getting that from um, students, from professionals, you name it, introduced legislation that um, 
would essentially eliminate all surprise bills um, for the most part with some notification requirements and things like that. So I worked over the last year, year and a half, and we got it down to um, not all surprise bills, but surprise bills in the emergency room context, um, because oftentimes you're unconscious and or it's an emergency and you can't look up on your app, where am I in network, um, you know, and make informed decisions where you're unconscious. We were able to narrow that down. I was able to, over the course of a year and a half, even though I do not think, I think there should be notification. I think hospitals and insurance companies and providers should all be providing more um, due diligence. Um, they're in the best position to do that for consumers. This was something where we were all able to come to the table and go, listen, in the emergency room, people can't do informed consent. They can't do their research. It doesn't make any sense. And we all agree. And that bill's on final reading um, and knock on wood when we return next week or the week after. Um, we'll hopefully get it across the finish line at bipartisan support um, and co-sponsors. That's one example of getting it across and compromising. You're going, listen, I really want it to be all of them, but let's focus and find some ways. But it took a year and a half. Um, the, the thing that we haven't been able to get across the finish line, that was one of my first bills I introduced, was LGBT non-discrimination in the workplace protections. Now, granted, the Supreme Court did the work for us on the, on the federal level. That bill has been really tough. Uh, and it's really tough because I know um, many of my colleagues that have voted against it in their hearts, they know it's right, but their constituents aren't there. So it goes back to that model, you know, um, of being a delegate. And actually, I should step back. I think their constituents are there. Um, and, I, and I know that from um, some polling and data that shows overwhelming support for LGBT non-discrimination protections in the workplace in rural and urban Nebraska. About 60% of rural Nebraskans support it, 70 to 80% of urban Nebraskans support those protections. I just think that there's constituents that are very vocal and active in some cases are not there. That's an example of an issue that um, is very personal because I have deep, close friends um, that are impacted by it, and uh, we have not been able to get across the finish line. How do you cope with um, the frustrations? Um, I would imagine that the work of being a state senator, which will be for eight years, could be very frustrating. And um, I mean, how do you how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to you have to see the long game, um, and you have to also understand that that there's only so much you can do. Um, you know, that's the thing is, is being able to go to sleep at night knowing that you've done everything that you can. You've made the right decision. And uh, in the end, um, this is a part of being in a representative democracy. If one person get a, got to decide which direction we were going, we wouldn't be in a democracy anymore. 
I think that the lawmaking process is best when it is deliberative and inefficient. Um, and so now granted, I feel differently sometimes when my bills are up for consideration. I want it to be efficient. I don't want anybody to say anything. I don't want it to pass. Um, but uh, you should be afraid anytime your legislature becomes too efficient. And that's the process that we have in place. Now, there are problems when it becomes so inefficient um, and it becomes less about good policymaking and reasonable disagreements and more about partisanship and money, which is what we've seen on the congressional level, I think. Um, that's a problem. Um, so there, there are extremes. Um, but in the Nebraska legislature, for the most part, on the big, meaty issues in Nebraska, um, we can generally find common ground. But, uh, you know, there are issues that transcend common sense um, and, and a lot of other things. LGBT non-discrimination is one of them. Um, and uh, we're gridlocked on it. In your experience, how important is it to have uh, someone um, in the governor's residence who also is playing along with, with this process um, and, and do you feel as if Governor Ricketts is, you know, a willing part of the overall process or is that where a lot of sort of bills that might get through just go to die? I can't pretend to know what Governor Ricketts thinks or does. Um, I, you know, my impression is that he um, does not view the legislature with deference or respect. I think he views it as a pesky board of directors that has to exist and that he feels an obligation to influence and try to change at every opportunity. And so, so, so no, I don't think we have a willing partner in the governor's office on the vast majority of issues. And, and I think that shows, I mean, a lot of his um, legislative priorities, quite frankly, um, don't get passed into law despite two thirds of the legislature being ideologically aligned and having the similar party as him. Now, our legislature is incredibly unique in that we have a very decentralized, nonpartisan system, uh, in which I respect and will always defend. But I think his inability to pass major legislative initiatives is really a demonstration of um, his inability to create relationships, um, sit down with people and across broad coalitions and find common ground. It is because he doesn't try. He doesn't do it at all. I mean, there's plenty of moderate um, Republicans I talked to, and they're like, yeah, I haven't heard from the governor. I was like, oh, I thought I was just off the, you know, <laughs> off the phone list. You know, I think you are too. Okay. And, and so in the Nebraska legislature, um, you really need to cross, you know, cross the ideological lines a little bit in order to get things done. And he's unwilling to do that. And I, I don't know if that's purposeful. I don't know if he's just not used to having to work with people um, to get things done. Or, if, you know, he just likes to politically posture, send out the press release that he's pro-property tax relief, and then do nothing substantive about it. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. But I try not to concern myself too much with that.
So Nebraskans for Civic Reform, now Civic Nebraska, you talked a little bit about the origin story behind that. Beyond the fact that it's shorter and pithier, why did you change the name from Nebraskans for Civic Reform to Civic Nebraska? Well, first, nobody was calling it Nebraskans for Civic Reform. They're all using the acronym. They were just saying NCR. And so anytime somebody has to abbreviate the name of your organization um, and turn it into an acronym, then you probably got the wrong name. So Civic Nebraska, so first it was really tough for people to remember Nebraskans for Civic Reform, the name, and they were saying civil reform and all this other stuff. Two, we want a name in which people will say and kind of understand a little bit for what we stand for. And I think Civic Nebraska is more encompassing of that. And then, you know, three, I just think uh, it's easier to remember. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's more inclusive of our mission and what we do. So it's, it's been 12 years now. And it's, it's grown, and maybe you can just talk about that. But given that it's more than a decade, how are you seeing the results of that work now show up? Well, I mean, so first off, a few different ways. One, we have advocated for policy reforms that have made it so tens of thousands of people can now register online to vote. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's a big deal, particularly when a lot of people in my generation don't even have stamps or a printer to print off the voter registration card. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that legitimately wouldn't be registered on time if it wasn't so accessible, right? Um, both older, too, and younger, actually, people with accessibility issues. So, so that's, one, that's just one concrete example. Then we've also stopped a lot of bad stuff that would uh, make it so that people couldn't vote. But second... Um, I just know from our programs, because we have voting rights, we have civic health programs, and then we also have youth civic leadership programs. I can't tell you how many people that have been through those programs, um, either on the neighborhood level, on the community level, or on the school level, uh, that have gone on and done really cool things. Sometimes they're big things, sometimes they're small things. Sometimes it's getting a, a stop stoplight or stop sign um, at a major intersection where a bunch of kids are almost going to get ran over, right? And that, that's not that small of a thing, but it seems like, I guess. And then, you know, there's people that have quite frankly started their own organizations or their own neighborhood movements. And they've done it because they had the power to do it. Um, but oftentimes it started with one of our programs where we go, what do you love about your community? What are some of the things you want to change? So community asset mapping, you know, and and who are the different people that you need to connect with? Let's put together a plan. That's the genesis of our programs are, um, you know, who are you? What is your community? Let's define that. And what are the things that you love about it? Celebrate those things. And then what are the things you want to change about it? And that's something that you can do with a 90-year-old and you can also do with a five-year-old. And they can tell you. I don't think that we give enough credit to our young people. And give them the opportunity to explore their communities and what they want to see in their community. We often just tell them. So for us, a service learning project isn't go pick up the trash along the street. That's an adult usually telling people, hey, you should go do this because it's important to me. A service learning project is a young person doing the community asset mapping. What is my community? What do I love about it? What do I want to change? And then critically thinking about the different steps, institutions, and people that can be a part of that with them. Once we build those skills, those are lifelong skills and they're problem solving skills that people are more likely to do in the future. What our impact is and what our goals are, it's lifelong civic leaders.
talking about um, a focus on um, civic engagement with youth um, but you yourself are relatively young and have been in the state legislature for you know six years now and and so it makes me wonder did you encounter have you do you encounter um, what is essentially age discrimination not really to be honest with you I, I think that one of the things that surprised me when I started going door to door in 2012 when I announced so I would have been would have been 26 or 27 um you know and i i probably looked like i was 20 22 or 18 in some people's cases um you know most people i so i thought i was going to get a lot of people going oh, god you're not old enough you're not experienced enough i mean it was the exact opposite most people are really excited to see young people still caring about politics yeah i mean there was one percent of people that you know said oh you're not old enough or whatever and you know i joke around well you should see the other two guys i'm the oldest in the race so you know you're looking at experienced leadership here so i joke about it you know and most people would lighten up a little bit then but no so i don't experience that very often you know every once in a while something funny happens where they ask me you know how long have you been working for center Morbell? i'm like well 34 long years. <laughs> um, and, you know, things like that will happen, but it's kind of funny, I think. So, no, I don't experience that very much. And our colleagues, I think, are also of the mind that, because, I mean, the average age in the legislature is about 60 or so. I haven't calculated recently, but so most of them are um, older. And I would say the vast majority are just happy to have young people down there and have the voices down there and different perspective. Are there one or two people that are like, oh, they don't have enough experience or something? Well, in that case, I go, well, you know, that may be the case in, in your mind, but I've got to live with the decision that you're making a lot longer than you do. And so I think my perspective on this matters, you know, and so, so you get a little bit of that, but not very much. Is that partly why the focus of Civic Nebraska is towards the younger end of, you know, the, the, the life spectrum? When it seems to me that there are plenty of adults that need an education yeah. in being civically engaged. Yeah. So, I mean, if I had to break down where all of our program dollars go, and this is rough, um, so I hope none of the viewers, uh, you know, um, hold me to this, but I would say 10, 15% of our program dollars are voting rights, 20 or 30% are civic health um, work. So work with all age groups um, and neighborhoods and communities across the state. Um, and then probably about 50%, maybe a little bit more are youth civic leadership programs. And so, yeah, we have a strong focus on youth and that's because they're the future, right? And also if you build these civic leadership skills at an early age, you can build lifelong civic leaders. That being said, we agree with you. 
working with adults is really important. That's why we have a lot of programs that, that do that actually. Um, but uh, also there's just, you know, quite frankly, more resources, quite frankly, for um, youth civic leadership programs too. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of what resources are out there and it's also um, having a well-rounded focus as well as an organization. What do you need to tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I need to tell you is that, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to your elected official and give them your perspective. And don't assume that they're automatically going to dismiss your perspective, particularly if you um, articulate who you are, why you're similar to that individual, and what your story is, and why you care about the issue. Um, I think all too often, it's really easy to do. Um, I'd sometimes have to step back from the keyboard myself. Um, we just automatically assume that the other person on the other side is, you know, evil um, or has ill intent. And there are some people out there that do. But take the time to, to really explain who you are and your story and to create a human connection. I think you'd be surprised um, at the response that you get. Because I think all too often what we see, and it's really easy to do online, is people just demonizing people. I mean, it's just kind of unreal, even as an individual myself, to see what people just kind of make up and say online and suddenly has his life of its own. It's like, you know, Adam's a monster or something like that. It's like, where did that start? <laughs> and who spreads that stuff? Like, you know, and so, um, and so I, I think that particularly in this age of technology, we have to be really cognizant about um, respecting one another, making our opinions known and holding people accountable. Absolutely. But, also, just not assuming the worst right away about anybody, unless you have that firsthand knowledge. And if you do, or somebody you trust and know does, then so be it. My guest today has been Adam Moorfeld, Nebraska State Senator for District 46 in Lincoln and Executive Director of Civic Nebraska. Adam, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.